Well, let's again take out our Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, we will be continuing our way through the book of Genesis. So today we'll, we'll actually be looking at the whole chapter. Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. This is, again, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant <laughs> whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me, you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against his. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, Here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the reading of it. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. Help us to understand uh, what is happening in this passage. Help us to grow. Help us to be able to apply it. Uh, That we may give glory to our Savior, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Now there is, uh, in real estate, a saying that the most important rules are location, location, location. 
In the Christian life, we might say, uh, this is ripping a bit off of Christostom, that the three most important precepts of the Christian faith are humility, humility, humility. The Christian life is a life of submission to the Lord, of humbling ourselves, of coming under His care. Christ died on the cross to set you free from the power of sin and death. No longer are you destined for destruction if you are a Christian, but you have inherited eternal life. You have been brought into the kingdom. You've been purchased with a price and made an adopted son. And so we are to live and to walk by faith in humble submission to Christ and to His Word. We must believe God. We must believe His promises. Now Abraham is the prototypical man of faith. He was called out of that dark place called Ur, and he was promised a multitude upon multitude of children, and that he would inherit land, and that all the nations we blessed through him. Abram was to walk by faith. But Abraham's faith, as one commentator puts it, has been like a roller coaster. He has been up and he has been down. His faith at times has been very strong. He has been bold in the Lord. He has sought to live in obedience to God's word. But at other times, his faith has waned. He's been weak. He's questioned the Lord. He has been uncertain. He has been unsure. God has made incredible promises to him. And yet... At this point in the narrative, they've not come to fruition. Abram's faith has been greatly commended by the Lord. The promises of God have been continually reiterated. We saw this last time as the covenant promises were sealed. A covenant was cut by God, ratified by God. As the Lord moved through those animal pieces which were arranged over against one another, ensuring that the promises which God has made would indeed come to pass. Abram's faith has been greatly strengthened. He's been encouraged by what God is doing. But, again, it begins to falter as he becomes a pawn and a plot hatched by his wife to gain an heir for themselves. Instead of trusting in the Lord, they had determined to take matters up into their own hands. They didn't seek the Lord in this matter. And much like Adam and Eve, Sarah might have come up with an ill-advised plan, but Abram was responsible in carrying out it out. And, as we will see, the actions of Abram had grave consequences for the covenant community and for the nation as an intractable wild donkey of a man, Ishmael, was born to the woman who we might say is equally as obstinate. Sometimes, living by faith means 
that we wait patiently upon the Lord. That we humbly submit to the Lord. But you and I, well, we can become quite impatient, can't we? We can be proud that maybe, maybe I've got a better plan. I love the Lord and I have a wonderful plan for His life. We want to make all the plans. We want to make them fall into place. We want them to fall into place exactly as we have set them out because we want the outcomes that we desire. In fact, what we want really is to be God, don't we? Isn't this the case often that you and I think that we, when we do all the right things, and that then the outcomes should come out the way we expect it to. We've done the right things. And when that doesn't happen then we seek to control matters ourselves. We want to force the issue. We want to bend our fellow men and God to our will. Therefore getting the outcome that we desire. What is the problem of human nature? This is the problem that Abram and Sarah run into. And so as we continue our study of Genesis in chapter 16, uh, you will note that the scene is framed by reminder, uh, a reminder once again that Sarah has borne Abram no children. This is, a, this is a constant reminder. This is actually the pressing problem of Abram and Sarah. It's continued to weigh on them, in fact. God has promised them children and an inheritance And yet, it has not come yet. So as the scene opens, though, we're also introduced to another character. That's Hagar, uh, Sarah's uh, female Egyptian servant. Now, Hagar's relationship to Sarah is like Eleazar's was to Abram. She was answerable directly to her mistress. And so, as Sarah evaluates the situation, namely that she has no children, that she's barren, and at her age she doesn't seem to have uh, any possibility of having any children, she looks at this and thinks that maybe she has a solution to the problem. She says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall detain children by her. Now, Sarah was about 65 years old when she and Abram had left his father's house and settled in the land of Canaan. And we read that it has now been 10 years since they'd moved to the land. And so at 75 years old, she was certainly well past her childbearing years. And it has been by God's providence that thus far she's been prevented from having children. God had promised them children, but God's providence has caused it to be that they have not come to pass. Now we've seen this multiple times in our study, haven't we? This problem of the, the providences of God and the providences of God. God has promised something, and yet God's providences haven't allowed it to come to pass. And maybe there's a conflict here. Well, there may be a conflict for us as human beings, but there's no conflict for God. God's not at odds with himself. 
God has purposed, in fact, for Sarah not to have children yet, and yet she will have children. God's promises are sure. And so here, Sarah sees what she thinks is a conflict between the providences of God and God's promises. And she thinks that perhaps there's another avenue of achieving God's purposes. Now, if you think about it, here, here lies the problem. She thinks, I can achieve God's purposes. Who, who achieves God's purposes? Well, it's God who does. We don't achieve God's purposes for him. God achieves his purposes. Now, he may use us to accomplish his will, but we don't get to decide how God's purposes are going to be accomplished. God does that. And so here, Sarai uh, has this plan. Since Hagar was her personal servant, she could carry a child to term as a surrogate. For any child born by the household slave would would belong to her mistress. In fact, there was legal precedence for this. This is outlined in some of the ancient Near Eastern literature, such as the Code of Hammurabi or the Nuzi top tablets. So the law of that time period in that place would suggest that this would be the case. And so Sarah devises this plan, probably based on the law of the time. The law of that time and, the, and, that, and those lands allowed this to happen. So maybe this is the way for us to accomplish uh, the, the, the goal. But what might have seemed legally true, according to the law of the ancient Near East, was not, as we shall see, God's plan for Abraham and Sarah. This is not what God had in in mind. The secular law is not our place of refuge. We should not expect to find our rest in the laws of this nation. No matter how good the law may be, Our hope and our rest must be found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His Word. So here, Abram and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. They were synergistically attempting to help God out. Maybe maybe God needs a little help and I'll I'll help him out. Don't, Don't we do this sometimes, don't we? We can appreciate what is happening here. God, though, has something far greater, something more wonderful in mind. God was going to work a miracle through them. They needed to remain patient. But, obviously, as we see here, they're not. Well, Sarah uh, is offering his, uh, his servant to Abram. And so what is a husband to do? Well, what he should have done was refuse such a foolish request. But Abram, we read, listened to the voice of his wife. He agreed to do as Sarai had suggested. Now here what we see is a particular weakness in Abram. A weakness which manifests itself in us as well. He believed God. He believed God's promises. But he was willing to skirt God's will in order to get the desired outcome. Now, to this point, there has not been any hint of unfaithfulness on the part of Abram. There there was no polygamy among the people. In fact, it is conceivable that one of the reasons for for Noah's flood was widespread polygamy. Abram had one wife that he was faithful to, 
But here, he's agreeing to do as the world does. He was going to treat Hagar as a concubine and to procure children through her as if she was his wife. Abram is introducing a practice into the covenant community which would plague the nation of Israel for many generations to come. What Sarah had proposed and what Abram agrees to is a complete corruption of lawful marriage. A corruption which will have dire and long-term consequences for God's people. And so Sarah takes her servant Hagar and gives her to Abram as a wife and she conceives. Now the language you'll note here of take and give is the same progression of verbs found in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to her husband. Now, in the same way, uh, Abram is passively going along. Now, Abram's intimacy may have been limited to this one occasion. Nevertheless, Hagar is found to be with child. The pregnancy of Hagar, and in such a short period of time, contrasts with the perpetual barrenness of Sarah. Sarah has continually been barren throughout their entire marriage. Hagar comes along, suddenly she's pregnant. Particularly as we consider the last ten years, as these promises have been made, they've lived the land, and she still has not produced children. Hagar in this incident is treated though as mere property. She conceives, but then when she sees that she's pregnant, she looks upon her mistress, Sarah, with contempt. Which is to say, she despised Sarah. In her arrogance, she turned against the one who had asked her for help. Remember, Sarah asked Hagar to please, please help me with this. She accomplishes this and then looks, looks badly upon her. Perhaps Hagar thought she could displace her mistress. That she could be the new mistress of the household. That Sarah could be sort of pushed off to the side. But her attitude was a crucial mistake. And this causes her to be alienated from the family of blessing. Although Sarah was the one who had come up with the scheme, she considers the whole fiasco to be Abram's fault. She is the one who has been wronged. In fact, she says to him, May the wrong done to me be on you. In one sense, she's not wrong. She's not totally wrong to suggest this is Abram's fault. In many respects, his being passive, going along with this plan, makes this his fault. Now, she shares the blame, too. Don't get me wrong. But he should never have agreed to do this. Perhaps, though, illustrates how desperate they were for children. How painful this has been for them to wait on the Lord we should be careful not to be too judgmental. We're, we're, we're not different. We are equally impatient with the Lord. 
both Abram and Sarah were wrong in their actions. Perhaps Abram is most of all because of his passivity. He should have protected his wife, which he does not. He should have trusted in the Lord patiently, which he doesn't. He's weak. A great injustice has been done indeed, and God must judge what has happened. In fact, matters have gone um, from bad, seemingly bad, now to disastrous. The household uh, is now in turmoil. Now, Abram's response to this is simply to sort of put the ball back into her court. Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Abram uh, points to the reality of the situation. Hagar was her maid servant. She can do whatever she pleases to do with her. And the patriarch seems to give little guidance as to what ought to be done. Now, if some of the ancient texts are any guide uh, on this, on what the, the legal ideals of the time were, um, there's no allowance for a mistreated mistress to be sold by the maid, by the, uh, to sell the maidservant. In other words, uh, Sarah couldn't just sell uh, Hagar off. So even the secular law is not being consistently upheld. Abram directed his wife to treat Hagar as she pleased. Literally, whatever is good in your eyes, whatever you see is good to do with her, just do that. Do what you think is best. Now perhaps Abram is not clear, but the mis- but mistreatment is not necessarily intended in his instruction. Nevertheless, this is what Sarah does. She deals harshly with Hagar, who then flees. The specific mistreatment is not given, but the Hebrew word choices suggest subjugation, oppression, and even despair. She treated her very, very badly. No longer was Hagar the favored maidservant. She was now treated worse than a common slave. Sarah had been victimized by her barrenness and by the disdain of her servant, but now she became the victimizer. And she was cruelly abusing her maidservant. And so the text simply says that she fled from her. Hagar flees from her abuse. Uh, previously, the narrator has been sympathetic to Sarai's plight of being barren, of the disdain of Hagar. But now the sympathies change as the, mis- the maidservant is abused by the mistress. So Hagar flees from the household, but the angel of the Lord goes after her and finds her, says, by a spring of water in the wilderness by Sure. Now, sure means wall. This literally means wall. What this suggests is that these, these were the fortifications along the Egyptian border, which probably means that Hagar was headed back to her home country of Egypt. But it was not, that was not to be the place where she would find rest and salvation. The angel of the Lord asks Hagar, servant of Sarai, where are you coming from and where are you going? The question asked by the angel highlights Hagar's social status as a slave. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? 
Well, she's a slave. Where is she going? Egypt, in general. Her prospects for life were dim at best. It's a single pregnant woman fleeing servitude. There wasn't a lot of places for her. The messenger of the Lord instructs her to go back. Look at verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. She is the maid servant of Sarah, and she was to humble herself to the hand of her mistress. In effect, she was to go back to her subordinate position and endure what might be an oppressive life. This does not uh, uh, hear, doesn't come into the ears of modern people very well, does it? This sounds like terrible advice. This is not advice. This is a command. The Lord is telling her, go back and submit. This woman who wanted freedom and esteem, and remember, she's the one, after all, who was pregnant, where her mistress had not been able to be pregnant. She must learn to submit herself. Those who are under authority advance not by casting off social boundaries, but by honoring and submitting to them. This is a lesson that it seems must be relearned throughout history. It is a lesson that that is lost on many of our fellow countrymen. Uh, Study sometime the difference between the American uh, independence and the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution. Study that out sometime. One was a working within the systems of government which existed in that place and time. The other were complete casting off of all boundaries, which resulted in the exchange of one type of tyranny for another type of tyranny. That's just history. Many in our day need to understand and appreciate the difference. Hagar, for her part, would gain nothing by fleeing from the place which God had called her to be. But actually, in her fleeing, may well suffer a much worse fate. In her demeanor towards Sarah, and then in her running from her hand, Hagar was attempting to overturn her place in the covenant community. You and I don't earn our freedom by attempting to overturn authority. That's not where freedom is found. We are given freedom in Christ as members of the household of faith through the graciousness of our Savior and our God. If Hagar would remain and submit to the household of Abram, she and her son would enjoy the benefits of the household of faith. Remember, this is the household of promise. Hagar was to enjoy blessings from the Lord. Look at verse 10, where he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. Although the members of the household of faith may well suffer, and we may suffer for doing what is right, we may suffer for speaking the truth, we may suffer for standing firm in Christ, we may suffer, but there are blessings which come from God. For He is our shield and our defender. Hagar here is given promises. She would have an an abundance of children. From her would come a son, a son who was to be called Ishmael, because the Lord had heard her affliction. 
And Hagar had been mistreated. She had been abused. She was living in misery. And none of this had escaped the notice of the Lord. God saw her oppression and looks after the oppressed. And here, one who is to play a role in the history of salvation. In fact, we are given a foretaste of that as the angel relates what sort of man Ishmael was to be. Verse 12, He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Ishmael was to be warlike. He was to be uh, a warlike man. A idiomatic description of a, a, a wild donkey of a man, which is to say that he was, he was to live life outside of social conventions. Fearless, individualistic, and hard-headed. He was a man who would do as he pleased. He would stand in opposition to all. Ishmael was not a, was not a child whose seed would bless the nations. He was to be a man who left the confines of the covenant promises and lived on his own far away from God. This is the sort of man Ishmael was to be. Ishmael's independence is is further illustrated by his hostility to everyone. He was hostile to everyone. It says, His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. This man was threatened by and a threat to all of his neighbors. He was at war with everybody. And he will hold his own against everybody. Ishmael's children then were to be like wild donkeys full. What is described of Ishmael can be said of any who live outside of God's kingdom. Anybody who is outside of Christ. The reckless scrapper, the constant belligerent who is in rebellion against God and at war with God's people always. Some of these sorts of people are your neighbors. Some of these people are your co-workers. Some of these people are in your family. Some of these people would be you were it not for the grace of God. Ishmael reflects the lifestyle of Cain and his progeny, Lamech, who we have been, we've already been introduced to. Uh, in the end, Ishmael will live apart from his brother Isaac. He will live apart from the household of promise. He will be committed to his own freedom and to his own autonomy, which actually, as we read uh, in the New Testament, is actually a life of slavery, interestingly enough. And so there is a promise for Hagar, a son and a multitude of offspring, but not all was to be good. Hagar has learned the Lord both hears and sees her sorrow. And so as a memorial to what has taken place, Hagar acknowledges the Lord, calling Him the God of seeing, and naming the well there, Beer Lahoi Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. God has seen her affliction, and God has acted on her account. And so Hagar returns... And she bears Abram a son. Now, three times it is mentioned in both verses 15 and 16 that the son belonged to Abram. So this is being emphasized. This is Abram's son. Ishmael was Abram's son, but he's not the son of promise. 
He's not the son of promise, which does actually present some ambiguity as to his status. On the one hand, he is the son of the patriarch. He is Abram's son. But on the other hand, he is the son of the household slave. Therefore, his claim on any inheritance was not automatic. The boy is named Ishmael, God hears, by Abram, just as the Lord had instructed Hagar. And so in this way, Abram acknowledges the boy as his own and an acceptance of God's plans for him. Abram was 86 years old when this took place, we read. Again, reminds us of the growing improbability of the chosen son coming. As we continue through this, it becomes less and less probable that there's any... This, this son is coming. This one is promised. Abram and Sarah continue to age as the sands of time continue to fall. Both, though, were going to need to patiently wait on the Lord. Their attempt to force God's hand has been a disaster and has shown their faith to be weak. And yet, God's grace is solid and sure. Well, this incident of Abram and Sarah's foolishness and weakness of faith uh, coming between the ratifying of the covenant in chapter 15 and then the giving of the covenant sign in chapter 17 is actually quite striking. Consider its placement in the Scriptures. There is a sense in which the sureness of God's covenant is being tested and then demonstrated. How sure is God's grace? How certain is the covenant? God has given the covenant. God said, this is what's going to come to pass. What's the, what's the next thing that happens? Okay, we're going to test out. See how, how, how sure this is. Abram, the man of faith, falters. He shows himself to be weak. It's a good thing that he wasn't the one to walk through those animal parts. And yet, even as Abram is weak, God's promises, God's covenant is rock solid. You and I can rest in the Redeemer. God's covenant people are dependent on God's sovereign grace in order that we may have freedom in Christ. As we submit to Christ, we are free in Him. Just as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. A commitment to autonomy, doing it ourselves on our own, is not a recipe for freedom. You might think it is. You might think, well, I just, you know, this is my life and I'd make all the decisions and, you know, I I know what's best for me. It's not a recipe for freedom. You don't have freedom. You have bondage. You are a slave. And you don't even know it. When we seek to help God accomplish His purposes, we are living like our relationship to God is synergistic. You know, I do my part, God does His part. But listen, that always leads to disaster. Sarah and Abraham attempted to help God to bring His will to pass through Hagar. This weakness in their faith had immediate consequences. Strife in their home. Hagar treats Sarah with contempt. But there's also long-term consequences. The the introduction of polygamy, a mixed progeny, 
which would inherit Hagar's defiant spirit and eventually be a people who were great enemies of Israel. Sarah and Abraham's lapse of faith leads to the entire household suffering. Sarah is disrespected. Hagar is driven from her home. And Abram suffers the heartache of the strife in his home. And, the, and, and future generations will experience this strife as well. But even as our faith wanes, God has compassion on the humble. God intervenes to relieve the oppressed. And so the Christian must find hope in our dependence on God. Not our own independence. Not in our do-it-ourselves, you know, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We find our our hope and and our freedom and our dependence on God. Freedom comes as we submit to the yoke of Christ. And so Christian... As your faith waxes and wanes, ebbs and flows, here's my encouragement to you. Seek the Lord. Be clothed in humility, for where you are weak, He is strong. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, 1 Peter 5, 6 reminds us. If we're to find ourselves in this passage, we may, we may see uh, ourselves like Sarah and Abraham because of weakness. But consider this also. In many senses, we're actually most like Hagar. Because we're, we're defiant. And yet, how did God treat her in our passage? How did God treat the defiant servant? With gentleness and compassion. With a call to submit. The Lord deals with you and I with gentleness and compassion and a call to submit to Christ. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, rest in Him. Acknowledge that His grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness He is strong. And that grace, that grace is undeserved merit. This has come at no effort on your part. You and I add nothing to the promises of God. Trust in the promises of Christ. Humbly submit to Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We do ask, O God, that You would help us to humbly submit ourselves to Your Word, to submit to Christ, Father, we thank you for all of your promises through Jesus Christ, salvation. We thank you for um, the blessings which you pour out on us. And yet we admit we are impatient. And we want to to see things come to, to pass in our timetable. Help us, God, to be patient and to humbly submit to your timetable for our lives. Help us to trust and rest in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.